0: So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. He cares about the effects, not just sin itself,
1: but upon the effects that it has upon us. Disease. Yeah, COVID, right? Heartbreak. Distress. Death. You know, all the things that touch our lives from living in this sinfully fallen, corrupted world that, that causes us so much pain, and and yet Jesus felt, Jesus still feels our pain. He has compassion. He weeps with us. He He grieves with us. He mourns when we mourn. He cries when we cry. He allows himself to be touched by all of our infirmities. He is He is our God of compassion. Boy, I hope you guys never forget that. He's our God of compassion. When you are, I just would encourage you, you know, when you're in those dark places in life and you feel so alone, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is standing right there with you and he's grieving with you. He's mourning with you. He feels your compassion. He's not just standing there saying, snap out of it. He's not doing that. And he's not some faraway away. Theological concept that he can't relate to what you're going through. It's why he came in the flesh. We're told elsewhere in the scriptures that he came and he suffered what we suffered so that like us, he would know. He would know. What a compassionate God we have. I'm so grateful for that. And now it's compassion that he allows himself to feel for this woman. And and he comforts her by telling her, not to weep. Now, I want to caveat that by saying this is a statement that you and I cannot make to people in the same way that Jesus could. We we are looking at people and saying to people, "Don't, don't cry. You know, don't cry when they're in pain. We don't have, you know, we don't have in us the ability to do what Jesus is about to do for her. See, he has an authority and a power and ability to do something for her that backs up that statement. He's made. You and I don't have that. We don't have that ability. But but you and I do possess the same level of, you know, uh, of ability to come alongside of people that he does. And he can lead us through spirit to come alongside of people, but, but we don't have that same level of divine power to take away all of the pain that they're experiencing. So for us to tell people not to weep can turn out to be really unhelpful. You know, I've made a practice over the years here as people have walked in our doors, and I I will have people that will walk right up to me and tell me, just so you know, I struggle with depression. How do you feel about that? And I said, Oh, I grieve for you. Aren't you gonna tell me to smile? No, I'm not going to tell you to do that. Well, everybody else does, well I'm not everybody else and Jesus won't look at you and just say you got to smile and put on a happy face while you're dealing with your pain. That that's not at all that that they, he did nor do we, you know, and I certainly don't want to do that, but, but what I can do is I can come alongside of you. You guys can come alongside of others who are grieving and are suffering and doing these things. You can come and bring a comfort to their lives simply by being there. You see, That's what we have to offer people, and and we have the ability to offer to people the one hope that they can have, the hope that they can find in Christ in the midst of their pain and sorrow and suffering. We can come alongside of them and offer to them the one who has compassion for them in their suffering, you see. We can let them weep. We can even weep with them, but we can also assure them that Jesus sees their tears and has compassion for them. We have a unique, I think, and privileged ministry of comfort. You know, it's a ministry we've been given to comfort one another. We have a ministry of comfort given to us by Jesus that he'll use in bringing hope and comfort to 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 the midst of the pain that people we may encounter are dealing with. I think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. You see, He's the God of all comfort. Jesus is demonstrating that. But listen to what Paul says, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, I often We'll tell people if you're going through difficult circumstances, I can't, you know, people always want to know why I'm going through this. Why would the Lord let me go through this? And well, my answer is I don't, I don't know. I don't know why he's letting you go through it, but I can tell you what he'll do with it. That I can do. I can tell you what he will do with it if you will let him. He will let your experience become something by which he can use in you to minister to someone else who goes through difficulty, though the other person that you may deal with may not go through the exact same thing you've gone through and you're not going through what they went through. You still understand what comfort God can bring to your heart so you can then turn around with with empathy And and come alongside of them in the same way, you see. I think that if the body of Christ ministered more like that, there there'd be more encouragement that was going on within the body of Christ to one another. And it's what we're called to do. And I think it's a privileged ministry. And so sometimes suffering can be a privileged calling in and of itself. Paul saw it that way. And clearly, I believe Paul was probably one of the greatest of coming alongside of people and to be able to comfort in the same way of the tribulations that he went through. And so I hope you'll do the same thing. But Jesus here, he can effectively say to this woman, don't weep, because he has the power to replace her tears of weeping with tears of joy, right? And so let's look on and see what he does. Look at verse 14. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went out throughout all Judea and all the surrounding regions. I, I, you know, could you just imagine? (laughs) There you are, you know, amongst the crowd, and you're on your way to the funeral, and Boom. There's Jesus. He says, arise. And the dead person not only just sits up, but they start to talk, you know. I remember when my my stepfather died. I was young when my dad died. My mom got married again, and I was ready in the army. I was a captain in the army at the time, and I remember the pain my mom was going through when he died. And she was married to him for three years, and she was really happy, you know, in the second marriage. And he became like a dad to me. He was a good man. He was just a kind man. And uh, you know, when he died, I saw my mom's pain, and I felt it too. And I remember just weeping. Lord, raise him up, raise him up. He didn't do that, you know. He didn't do that. But you know what? When Jesus walked, he did those things. And and just imagine the response of the crowds to that. I mean, yeah, uh, to say here that 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 fear came on him, that's probably an understatement. It's not fear. Like I'm afraid of the rising dead, but fear of awe, you know, respect. Who is this? Who is this guy that just did this? And, And then there are words here that a great prophet has risen up among us. You know, I'm quite sure that these crowds who witnessed this event and said that about the prophet, you know, a great prophet among us, that they had in mind a similar incident that took place. And, And it really took place not very far from this same town of Nain where Jesus has just done this. And it was a prophet that was well known to them. Flip over with me, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. Little connections we sometimes don't make that really give us the backdrop to to what may have been going through the minds of the people and how they're dealing. with, But 1 Kings chapter 17, picking up in verse 8. 1 Kings verse 8. 17 and verse 8. 1 Kings 17 verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. Now, by the way, just for a backdrop, this is Elijah. Right. This is Elijah that's being told to do this. And, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said as the Lord your God lives I do not have bread only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar and see I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah and she and her and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. Now, it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. This event, now keep this in mind, this event concerning Elijah took place at a place called Zarephath. Now Zarephath was a city that was less than, are you ready, two miles from where Jesus is now doing this similar miracle of raising the dead and and it had to be in the minds of the people who are watching this right immediately. Elijah had to come back to mind and and then they're thinking to themselves, "This is another prophet like Elijah. here he is, and yet what they didn't fully perceive in 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 what was happening here is that this was not just a great prophet like Elijah. In fact, this wasn't a prophet at all in the sense of the, their thinking, but it was God among them living in human flesh. And, and unlike Elijah, who, who had to look to God, I mean, look at what Elijah did when he took the child. He took him up, and he, he brought him onto the bed, and he laid on him, and he, and he cried out to the Lord for the Lord to raise him up. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus simply, with a word, spoke to the young man, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise, and boom. All of human physical matter and, and spirit immediately responded to, to the simple word of Jesus. Elijah couldn't have done it the same way. Just like the miraculous healing of you the know, centurion servant that we looked at last week, Jesus' word spoken was all that was needed. That's all that had to happen. That's the authority that he had when he walked here because he's God in the flesh. And I want you to know this, that, that, that Jesus is still doing this today. He still speaks a word into our spiritually dead lives. And 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 we're resurrected. I mean, think about that. Think about who you are today versus who you were before you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You thought you had life then, but now you realize how much has changed and what real life is. Just as Jesus said, I came to bring life, but I came to bring it more abundantly. And he had the authority to do that. He spoke a word right into your life. Be safe. Be redeemed as you placed your faith in him. And it was done. He still speaks that word and we're resurrected. As Paul declares in Romans chapter four and verse 17, it is God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. He's done that with our spirits. He's already done that with our hearts, with our spirits. You know, I often point out when Paul says that we're new creations, that word in the Greek new is is the word kinos. It's not. It's it's not new in the sense of renovated. It's not new in the sense of you know reformed. It's it's new in the sense of completely new from nothing. It's completely new out of nothing. What you are, what you've been made, what you've been resurrected to, is a life that is completely, absolutely brand new, you know, and that's what he's done for us. He does. He gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And he's done that with our spirits. But here's the good news. One day he's going to do that with this, right? One day he's going to do that with our physical flesh. And unlike this man who Jesus has now restored to life, guess what? Guess what's going to happen with him? he's going to die again. His physical body will die again. You know, we often say that when we deal with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's a miraculous event. It's awesome, but he's going to die again. They didn't live forever physically after these resurrections, but those of us whose spirits and souls that Jesus has resurrected can be assured that though we might die physically unless we're raptured, right? But if we die physically, there will come a day when he will raise up our physical bodies once again, back to life, resurrected life, never to die again, never to die again. As Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. You know, it's one of the verses we read at funerals as pastors. You've probably heard that if you've been to funerals. That's always a key verse we read to people, but I think far too many people don't think about what that verse really means, or they can't relate to it because they've never experienced the resurrection power of Jesus in their lives already, right? And and you have to know the resurrection power of Jesus in your life already to be that born-again new creation to understand that verse, but that verse goes beyond just the life that we have. I mean, the moment we die, you guys know this, but the moment we die, our souls don't sleep. We go immediately into the presence of the Lord. Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but the body sleeps, right? People get confused when they read in Thessalonians and it talks about the sleeping and such. They think it means everything. When you go into grave, you're just going to kind of wait until Jesus wakes you back up. No, you're, you never, you transition from this life to the eternal life which has already begun for you if you're in Jesus. Eternal life is already begun for all of us in Christ. It isn't like we're waiting for eternal life. It's already started but we'll make that transition with our souls in death, with our spirits. In that moment of death, given, given temporary clothing, temporary bodies, the body, the physical body will sleep in the grave until the resurrection of the dead. But in that moment, our body will join with our spirit once again, and we'll be standing completely resurrected in physical bodies. This is what separates us from the Gnostics. You know, the Gnostics of the first century were run around teaching the body's bad, you know, and and, and the spirit is good. and, and so they separated these two. Well, look, the body is fallen. There's no question it's been tainted by sin and affected by it. But here's what makes it different, is that Jesus isn't looking to separate you from the body. He wants to resurrect the body. He wants to put it back to the way it was always meant to be from the very beginning, to make you and me like Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. Completely new. I don't know what that will bring with it. I don't know what powers that will bring with it. I suspect there are some, because we're told that when we see him, we shall be like him. And when I think of that, speaking of Jesus, what did Jesus do? He walked through doors. He did all kinds. Who knows what we're going to be able to do? It doesn't matter, because that's not the focus. What the focus really is, is the life-giving power that Jesus has over us eternally, not just spirit, but body as well, right? Jesus said to him, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You know, when Jesus departs, and the disciples want to know, well, where are you going? And how are we going to find you? remember that, right? Well, how are we going to find you? You know, how are we going to know where to go? And, you know, how are we going to know the way? Jesus says, well, I'm the way, right? But he says to him what? He says, I, I go to, to my father's house. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a room for you. You know, I go to prepare that room for you. And, and, and there are many people, myself included, who believe that Jesus isn't just talking about a dwelling place that we'll have there, but that he's talking about the physical body that he's preparing for us that dwelling place that we'll be in eternally in a righteousness, this body resurrected, that he's preparing that state for us, that that will one day come to pass. I don't know, just a thought. But in First in Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, First Corinthians 15 and verse 22, Paul says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Right? The physical body is going to die. Every human being has disappointment, Right? Uh, except the generation that will be raptured, but all other human beings have that appointment, right? And what do they say? It's the one thing you got to do, right? You got to pay taxes. I would argue with that. You don't have to pay taxes. You should pay taxes. Um, you can go to jail for not paying taxes, but they say you got to pay taxes and you got to die. It's two things you're going to do. It's, it's the inevitable course for all human beings. But the assurance that we have as believers is that death is not the end. You know, we've been working our way through the psalms on Wednesday nights, and we've come to a couple of them that the psalmist, a particular psalmist, was writing. And, and it was one of the bleakest psalms that any of us have ever read. I mean, it's it's a psalm of layment that never ends its lament. Usually in the psalms, I think it was Psalm 89 we were looking at, but the psalm of layments generally end with a resolution, and this one doesn't. I mean, this guy's just gone through a really bad time and he's, you know, he's, he's kind of opining on everything he's gone through to the Lord and, and he's questioning anything that has to do with the afterlife. For him, the grave becomes the end of it all which was not always, you know, that's not unusual for Old Testament saints. Many of them had very shadowy understanding of the afterlife. The New Testament, the New Covenant has given us a clear picture of that. But there were Old Testament saints who clearly understood the afterlife. They knew that life didn't end in the grave. David knew that, right? Job knew that. What does Job say, his greatest declaration in the midst of his trial? He says that, I know that when my body, I'm paraphrasing here, but when my body is destroyed, I shall see God with my eyes. My Redeemer lives, and I will see him with my own eyes in the flesh. You know, he knew there was an afterlife. But even in Jesus' day, there were groups that didn't necessarily believe it. You look at the Sadducees, because compared to the Pharisees, Pharisees believed in the afterlife. The Sadducees believed this was it. You know, and that's why they were sad, you see, right? That's how you remember the two, right? And so, you know, this was not uncommon, but you and I, we've been given such assurances and we know that, and Jesus made that point. He wanted us to know that though the body dies, this is just the beginning, and the body will one day be resurrected. And so, although he's not saying that here, we do think of that as he raises this man back to life who will die again physically. But who, with faith in Christ, can be assured that there is another resurrection coming in which he will never, ever die again? Amen? So I pray that you guys have entered into that through faith in Jesus. Well, look on. He says in verse 18, Then the disciples and John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Interesting. Interesting. Up to this point, we've been focusing on a small group of disciples that Jesus was preparing for ministry, but now we get to go back and look at a guy, at least a momentary glimpse of a guy who's been out there engaging in ministry even before Jesus began his work of ministry here on the earth, and that man is John the Baptist. Remember John? John John's the guy who was making the way straight for the coming of the Messiah. John is the guy who was out there boldly calling people To repentance. John is the guy who, when Jesus came to him to be baptized, nearly refused, saying that he wasn't even worthy enough to tie the sandal straps of Jesus, let alone baptize him. And John is the guy who, after Jesus's baptism, told his own disciples to follow Jesus instead of himself. Now, it is the same John who Luke tells us, sends a couple of his disciples to ask Jesus this very puzzling question, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Whoa, John, what's going on? What's going on here? I mean, John, you've been serving the Lord all this time. You've even been boldly telling your disciples to follow Jesus. Jesus that he's the one and now you're questioning if he's actually the messiah you, you the same you're the same john who said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and now you're asking if you've made a mistake if you've overinterpreted things made assumptions you shouldn't have made what's going on john you know bible teachers and scholars have offered up over the years a number of thoughts as to why John is asking this question. And some suggest Firstly, that he was saying this only to convince his own disciples, that he knew this wasn't a question of John. He knew, but what he was doing is by getting them to go to Jesus and to ask this question, they, Jesus would be able to open up their eyes to who he really was and give them the answer. In other words, by sending them to ask Jesus this question, they would hear the answer for themselves and then choose to follow Jesus. John Calvin held that view believing that John was again simply shifting the focus of his disciples to the one he knew they needed to follow. I, I don't buy that idea because the context really doesn't support that very well. It, it's too neat. It's it's just too convenient as I look at this. It's, it's a position that, that seems to have in its end the goal of sanitizing this incident. I think there's a little bit of sanitation going on from, from Calvin's perspective and those who believe this. It's just not there contextually. Then there are some who suggest that John was getting impatient for Jesus to act in a way that would even more clearly identify who he truly was. The idea being that even though Jesus was doing all sorts of miracles and publicly teaching, he wasn't really out declaring himself to be the Messiah.